Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, you're very welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast on today, the 6th of December. Now, earlier this week, I went over to England for the Irish Examiner to take the temperature of the general election campaign and I met a lot of interesting people and found some very interesting attitudes to politics, to Brexit, to the general election that's going to take place next Thursday. One person I did speak to was Ray O'Rourke. Now, he's the chief executive and the major shareholder of Lang O'Rourke, which is the largest privately owned civil engineering company in the UK. The company operates right across the globe and they're involved in major civil engineering works, including aspects of the Channel Tunnel and major infrastructure in places like the Middle East and Australia. Ray O'Rourke is a man who landed in London from his native county Mayo 50 years ago. He began life as a labourer on the London Underground, worked his way up, uh, started his own company, eventually bought Lang Construction, which was one of the most prestigious companies in the UK at the time. And he went on to greater things from there. He's frequently mentioned in these rich lists. And I'd have to say, having met him, I'd say it's the kind of thing he pays no attention to at all. One of the reasons he agreed to speak to me, and he's somebody who very rarely gives any interviews to the media, is that he feels so strongly about Brexit and the coming election and the impact it'll have on the UK, as well as the impact it'll have on this country here. I met him in his office down in Dartford, Kent. And I started off by asking him how Brexit had affected his business and the construction business in general in the UK. Well, um, until the end of October, it didn't affect us as much as it has since. And let me explain that. Up till October, we were feeling a bit of inertia around decision-making and projects going ahead. Since the end of October and the Brexit not being completed as Boris Johnson had uh, said he would and then going into election, I think our industry, but industry in general, is paralysed. Until we get to the election, hopefully we'll get a positive outcome, i.e. that one party or the other will have a majority and we don't be in in a hung parliament, then I think we will see a huge shift because this country is going to have to reflate its economy. And when you say one side or the other, uh, uh, that you don't get a hung parliament, if, for example, and it seems highly unlikely at the moment, but if Labour were to win the election, their approach to Brexit, I suppose the reality is it, it could see it drag on, the process drag on further again. Well, I, I, I am absolutely apolitical. So I don't, I don't, I'm not a part of a party. Um, and I will and would support good leadership. And I think there's a difficult, there's a massive difficulty today looking at that from that perspective. The leadership is not as strong, I don't think, as you need to deal with the issues we have today, irrespective of which party it is. Um, my concerns are that what um, Jeremy Corbyn and his leadership team are advocating is stuff that we saw back in the late 60s and early 70s. And we saw this happen before with Michael Foote, and it didn't get up. So I would think, and not that I know a lot about uh, politics, 
My view is that it's unlikely that his leadership team will get Labour across the line, even with enough to form a minority uh, government. And as you say, for exa- as, as it appears now, and this is only in polls, it would appear that uh, Boris Johnson would be heading back to number 10. Um, but then you face into a scenario of trade deals and all that. Is that going to paralyse things further, in your opinion? I think we need to take the, the emotional tension out of this and consider the great relationship that exists between the UK and Europe. And more particularly, the need we have in Ireland, both north and south, to support uh, a very, very strong relationship with the UK post-Brexit, assuming it happens. And I don't think that there will be quite the same difficulty negotiating deals, uh, both in the medium to long term, uh, between the UK and Europe, as you would get between, say, a Canada or another nation that's coming in. There is a deep and a very meaningful relationship that's there, and I think that there will be the opportunity to do sensible arrangements going forward. It's a symbiotic relationship. Europe needs the UK. Europe needs uh, the UK needs Europe, and Ireland definitely needs Europe and the UK. But unfortunately, the political reality, someone suggests, is that just as he has been under pressure now from elements within his own party, should Boris Johnson win, he'll continue to be under pressure for what elements in his party want, which is a hard Brexit. I don't think that's a realistic expectation, and I think a lot of that will fall away, because if he has the majority that's been predicted, and of course we know that polls are one thing and the reality is another, but I don't think that the hard Brexiteers will get a say in this and they'll just have to come to terms with the idea that we need this relationship and we need it on a number of fronts because if we don't have a relationship, you could run the risk of civil unrest and certainly civil disobedience. And we know how that can cripple a nation very, very quickly. You're saying that you would foresee that if there wasn't a healthy relationship with the EU... I think so. I think so. I think that that would inflame the people who wanted to remain. It has the potential to do that. But I also think that we have to understand that this is a critical point in macro politics, you know, the geopolitical issues that we have. If you look across what's happening in the US, if you take what's happening in Hong Kong, if you take what's happening in parts of Europe, and this very, very populist approach. And I think that's a dangerous place to be. And we do need to have a balanced approach to this rather than a hard Brexit and all that that would entail. And in the event that there is a soft Brexit, sort of put, um, would you see there being much um, implication for Ireland and its relationship with the UK? We have to understand, as, as Irish people, that the UK has been our shelter for a long time across many aspects. And even in the global financial crisis, um, when Ireland's banking system was in trouble, the UK was the first to step up with a seven or eight billion pound facility. Um, obviously, that's not, a, that's not a freebie. That was a, a, an intelligent thing to do. Uh, we have to look at the relationship we have north and south in Ireland and the importance of that. And 
I think we have to do that, and that's what will leverage the conversations as we go forward. And I'm sure that the Irish government, together, will have something to say within Europe in encouraging a good, sensible relationship on trade post-Brexit. Apart from business, and you would employ an awful lot of Irish people yourself, obviously, have you detected any change in mood in terms of attitudes towards Irish people? For example, I think a lot of people would suggest there has been change in mood and attitudes towards other immigrants. But have you detected or have you had reports of anything in relation to Irish people in terms of how they've been regarded here for so long, which, would, which would, I think is fair to say would have been a very welcoming way? Well, I came to England in 1966, the Thursday before England won the World Cup. Um, and then, of course, it was different. Uh, the mood was different for immigrants and for Irish and black people then. But we don't get hung up on that. And what I see now is that Ireland has... The Irish people here in the UK have integrated very well and make great progress. And I don't think there is an ounce of change, and there won't be an ounce of change. And do you see, in, ter in terms of when the Brexit project is done, uh, in terms of relationships with Europe, with Ireland, and I suppose by extension with the wider world, that apart from, you know, uh, just in name being out of Europe, that very little else should change? Well, I think the coming out of Europe for the UK is an emotional one. It's, it's in the mind's eye that uh, England, well, the UK, but England in particular, wants to be, take control of its, own, um, of its own justice system, its sovereignty, and, and do all of that. But I don't think that um, over the near to medium to, to the short to medium term, I don't think that there'll be a huge... We won't see a huge difference. In, in, in the short term, do you see an economic downturn here as some of these um, government agencies and what have you have predicted? Well, certainly from our industry, I don't think so. And uh, there's so, so much pent-up uh, opportunities and work that's required that it'll be the opposite. I think that there will be a huge tsunami of opportunities because we have to deal with the residential, you know, the living accommodation, the schools, the, we have to deal with energy, we have to deal with general transportation. And in the backdrop of that, uh, the government's going to have to stimulate the economy because it's stepping away from the relationship it has with Europe. And I, I always believe in staying on the sunny side of the street and I think it'll present a lot of opportunities. I saw that last year you mentioned about um, there was a drying up of funding with regards to projects. And was, was that down to Brexit, do you think? No, if I was making remarks about the funding, I was saying that uh, the, the available funding to our industry, the construction industry, is limited. But it's not limited in regards to funding the projects. I think it's just our part of industry, our sector, has not been good since the GFC and in the last four or five years. And I think that that will have to change. We'll have to come up with a different way of enabling that to happen. As you said yourself, you arrived over here 53 years ago now. Um, do you see the same opportunities for somebody who's young, who's ability and willing to work 
here now as there was when you came here and, and, and the country that this place was then? Oh, absolutely. I, I, you know, my experience is this is a tremendous country. Um, I'm passionately Irish, even notwithstanding the 53 years. But this is a very great... It's a great country, and it's uh, fair, even-handed, and it presents opportunities to everybody, provided you're prepared to work, and it doesn't matter where you come from. What was your first job when you arrived here? Uh, it's widely reported. I worked on the Victoria Line... Um, my father's first cousin was the pit boss and a couple of us got a job and we didn't know what we were doing but when we got down to the where the tunnel was being hand dug I got to push uh, a bogey up to where the guys were doing the the digging and the shoveling and that was it. It's very different today in today's world with communications, with travel etc but arriving here as a very young man in 1966 from rural Ireland effectively was it something of a culture shock? Well, of course it was a culture shock, uh, but I had been in Dublin for three years prior to that, so I got a hang of what an urban environment might look like. But it is a huge shock to come from one country to another and to come to a big metropolis like London. But we were able to cope with it one way or another, and we got the hang of it fairly soon. When you first went out on your own, what was your first job then? So I worked with Murphy's for eight years, nearly eight years, and decided that... I would, for whatever reason, I would have a go at a business on our own, subcontracting. And the very first job we got was for £2,500 doing some concrete work on the new headquarters for Molum's soil mechanics business. I mean, those are the kind of things you remember, like the first job that you were effectively your own boss in. I've never seen uh, what we do as being your own boss. I think that's a bit of a misnomer. Um, I can assure you when you have your own business, the business is the boss, and if you don't front up, you'll find that uh, it'll not work out as, as it would be. So I don't focus on that. The takeover of Lang, would it be fair to say, was a, a major development in, in your career in the business? Without a doubt, it was a very big, um, uh, it was a very big intersection or inflection point for us as a business. But uh, you know, people try to make it into some sort of drama. Um, there was a lot of risk came with it, but of course there was a huge amount of opportunity came for us. But also it was a great thing for Lang PLC to do because although they sold the business to us at what seems like a, a low price, they actually, we got a, a great brand, but we also got some liabilities to deal with. They were then able to streamline their business. And it's interesting that less than four years later, a business that had a market cap on the night on the day that we acquired it of 175 million was sold three and a half or four years later for a billion and fifty million. So everybody was a winner in that. And the other thing that strikes me is you're, it's been reported you're, you're a big fan of technology and, and, and the role of technology in the business. Would you have any fears in terms of research and development that has been again part of the business in the UK that that might be affected by Brexit? Not at all, not at all. I think that we have to understand that irrespective of what the relationships are in whatever parts of the world, the overarching thing of the future is technology, artificial intelligence, and that's going to play a big part. And when you think about it, our industry, the construction industry, is the last big industry that has not been modernised and has not been, um, 
what's the word, you know, it hasn't been uh, disrupted. So I think we're on the edge of disruption. I think that's exciting, and I think it's a great place for young people to deploy technology, off-site manufacturing, and how the digital age will make it an attractive place for women as well as men to work in. But take the heavy lifting out of it, and we will very quickly see ourselves going towards a 35-hour very productive week. And that disruption you talk of, it has been a feature of that in other industries, that one large feature of that was that low-skilled and unskilled work appear, disappeared to some extent. I mean, would you foresee that to be the case in construction? Well, I think that we have to not differentiate on low-skill or no-skill workers. I think what we have to look at is that in our industry, irrespective of what your job is, it has a certain skill, but it's not sustainable in, in the 21st century. So we'll be creating new jobs. So we'll, I think we'll transition from trades to technicians, and those technicians will not be working in the tough environment we have in the built, uh, in the building, in the construction sector. It'll be different. It'll be a professional. It'll be more professional. Uh, I don't mean that to be in any way derisory about what happens today. It's an exciting time, and uh, when you look at what's happened in other parallel industries. So if you look at the automotive industry, it's just amazing. Uh, if you take the aerospace, it's amazing. If you look at Transportation, look what um, um, Amazon is doing or Google. All that stuff is available to us and our industry is probably one of the most exciting to be in. When you came over here yourself, and I'd known it myself from people I know in generations, there was a huge cohort of people coming over here who had very little education. And as we know, education has got moved on to a different level at home. But do you still get a lot of people coming over here people who perhaps don't have a, a, a trade, who perhaps don't have a full education, looking for work in the construction sector as per the old is? I, I don't think so. I, it's not the same. Uh, back in, not my, ahead of my generation, there were very intelligent people that couldn't get to college for... Well, it was very highly intelligent. It was just and, education. And, and so they went into the industry and you could see their ability, their intellectual ability playing out and how they went about their works and what they did. Now the young people are so highly educated in Ireland that um, the majority of them are coming into different roles and we're seeing the roles that traditionally were filled by the Irish uh, being carried out by Eastern European people uh, who are very good. So we're seeing that uh, beautiful shift. Uh, Eastern Europe didn't have a lot, but they had a lot of skilled people. Some of them are very highly educated, but they couldn't get work, so they actually went into trades and very good at it. So I think there's a, a give and a get there that's very interesting. You still have the same energy for it, and you talked about exciting an exciting future. That's something that, that, that engages you still fully. Uh, I, I wonder what, you, what would you do if you weren't engaged with it, you know, and... Uh, I think it's something that's in our in our makeup in our industry. It's very exciting, and to be involved with young people and be at, try to be at the leading edge of what's likely to happen is couldn't be more exciting. Because I, I saw you mention this before about in terms of the role of women in the construction sector. As we know, traditionally there were very few, but that's something now you you, you see changing at an accelerated rate. Oh, without a doubt. Um, I mean, there's been such a shift in the way society sees itself and operates today. And uh, we know that we're missing out on probably... Well, we know it's 
50% of the available capability to us. And all we have to do is to engage in a different way, see it through a different lens, and you end up with extraordinary outcomes. Uh, I don't think it's a big deal, but for the people who are back in the day, probably does. but that's the future. And it also strikes me, people of your generation as well, Ray, of course, you came here because there was nothing at home. But when you look at the construction industry in Ireland, do you see it now as having come on in leaps and bounds? I think it would be probably best if I didn't comment on what's going on because I don't know that much about it. Um, there's a lot that could be done in a different way in Ireland as well. And um, perhaps... It's on a journey. Uh, the biggest impediment to doing things differently is the procurement methodology, and it's fiercely competitive in Ireland now, notwithstanding. And a lot of that, though, would be governed by EU rules, wouldn't it? I don't think I, I, I don't think people fully understand that the EU rules are not as stringent as they're held up to be. It's about interpret how you interpret them, but basically, in the EU and the OJU uh, requirements, you only have to show value for money. The other thing that people are saying about Brexit and about the way the British economy will move forward is that it'll probably be more deregulated. Do you see that as happening and do you see it as a good or a bad thing? I don't think it'll be uh, deregulated. And if there is some changes, there'll be just minor tweaks around the edges. This is a great country. It sets the standard for a lot of things in the world. And it's not, going to, it's not going to start to make less or inferior products. So I don't think there'll be a lot. I think that's just political noise. Well, it's interesting too that, I mean, if we were to look at the drama in politics over the last three months, if we were to look at the, the predictions, at the forecasts of uh, fallout for the economy, at the whole role of identity politics, one would get the impression from all of that, certainly looking from Ireland, that there was this major upheaval going on in the UK. But you seem to be saying, from your perspective, that it will all settle down and things, to a large extent, will move on as they were before. It always does. I think that... Um, uh, well, I know somebody said it, that uh, you, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. Uh, we know what that means. I think that we'll get through. Hopefully we'll get a stable government back in the UK that can focus on other things rather than the Brexit. And in a couple of years' time, I would say, well, what was that all about? That's my firm belief. Yeah, I think you'll agree. Uh, certainly somebody with very interesting uh, views and opinions on where things are at and somebody who should well be listened to, I would imagine, as well. Interesting that he feels everything is going to settle down and get back to some form of normality. Um, some would perhaps say that that's optimistic. No, as people will well appreciate people in business, particularly when they've achieved in business what he has, optimism tends to be uh, part of the territory. But I have to say he's somebody who has seen it all over the last 50 years, so his views should definitely uh, hold some sway. Now, the second person I met was Rory Godson. Rory Godson is a former journalist. He's from Dublin. Uh, he moved out of journalism and into public relations. He moved to London, set up his own firm, highly regarded now, very successful firm in the UK. And he's currently the chairperson of the British chapter of the Ireland Fund. I met him in his office down in the city of London and I began by asking him what exactly the Ireland Fund does. I chair the Ireland Fund of Great Britain. The Ireland Fund of Great Britain is a philanthropic network um, 
and originally established by Tony O'Reilly and Dan Rooney in Pittsburgh about 41 years ago. It was set up at a time to allow the Irish and the Friends of Ireland in America to channel their energies and their resources into projects supporting culture, peace, community, education in Ireland at a time when there were substantial resources in North America diverted back to help the IRA kill people in Ireland. And we set up, the British chapter was set up again by Tony 31 years ago. It met around the time, if your listeners remember, the Ballygoli bus bomb was a, a terrible killing of multiple young soldiers in the north in County Tyrone and it was so really at a really dark time in British Irish relations it set up uh, and being Tony he set it up with considerable aplomb with a, a ball in Claridge's Hotel and it was covered in the New York Times that it was such an unlikely event that the Irish and Britain would gather and clearly that's evolved over, over the years and it, it has run a number of campaigns it ran a very successful campaign during the last years of Celtic Tiger to raise money for the forgotten Irish in Britain uh, we continue to bring together Irish people to raise money for Irish charities. Yeah, as you say, it was set up when Ireland was at a very different stage of its development, so the, the focus would have changed on what the original one was. That, that's correct, but there's still a, a lot of very deserving and needy Irish causes in Britain, and a lot of our donors will also use us to help them channel money back to projects in Ireland. Okay, and in terms of the relationship between the UK and Ireland, um, have things changed much with the onset of the whole Brexit project? I think at an ordinary level, day-to-day, the relations between British and Irish people have continued at a very high level that was really established by the late 1990s. The ties of blood and business and travel are, are such that relations are extraordinarily close. I, mean, I, I would say that the British are a very fair-minded people, save in one respect, when it comes to the Irish, they're often more than fair. So while the relations at an intergovernmental level are, if you listen to the Irish Embassy and to the British government, at a multi-year low, the relations between British and Irish people remain extraordinarily close. Yeah, and we've seen, like, for instance, even in the current election, um, we've, there's issues in the Labour Party over alleged anti-Jew. Um, they're very much... There's the, a lot of Jewish people are feeling alienated by uh, the Labour Party. You have a similar scenario, not to the same extent, perhaps, in the Conservatives with uh, Muslims. There's talk of a certain rise of anti-immigrant feeling at certain levels. But in your opinion, would any of that have impacted on any level on Irish people here? No, I, I think the Irish are in a, in a very different situation. We, we are so commingled with the British in, in a way that really no other, no other migrant group has over the last century integrated so much with the British. So uh, undoubtedly in London now or elsewhere in Britain, you'll find a lot of anxiety among migrants and particularly among EU migrants, the, the feeling that they, that they were needed here and now that they're not wanted. But, but that feeling just doesn't exist for the Irish here. But on a business level, has it changed the, the way in which business is done between the islands and would you expect it to change further once the Brexit process worked out with trade deals? I think the main difference has been that there has been a reluctance in Britain 
over the past probably nine months to make business decisions, or, or prefer, I should say the first three quarters of 2019, the, the, the country had sort of ground to a halt. And there's a realisation now that come what may, life will continue and that we're likely to have Brexit from January and I think normal business activity is resumed and continuing. And you, you, you wouldn't see it having much of an impact, certainly in terms of the type of industries you're involved in, between the two countries? Ah, listen, I, I think in very general terms that Britain will gradually slow down and that they're provided Britain doesn't have a hard Brexit, Brexit will probably be marginally good for Ireland. You'll see a lot of businesses replicating their efforts in the UK, in Ireland. In other words, international businesses headquartered in the UK will want to have something in Ireland. And so there's lots of economic activity generated by that in Ireland. And in terms of the economy here in general, I mean, we've seen so many forecasts, even by government think tanks, that um, it's going to have a major impact. Do you have the sense within business that, that, that that's there, or do you think perhaps it may be exaggerated? I think it's probably exaggerated, provided we don't have a hard Brexit. There, there is a substantial risk of a hard Brexit at the end of next year, in other words, that Brexit will happen in January and then it crash out without a trade deal at the end of the year. If that doesn't happen, I think fears are probably exaggerated. Uh, Britain was never really, or the United Kingdom was never fully in the European Union and won't be fully out of the European Union. And, and the question really is how far out it will go. The question in the past was how far in it would come, and the question now is how far out it will go. I actually think that in the short term, uh, we could probably have a boost of economic activity after breaks because there's a lot of pent-up de- decisions that haven't been made. You'll probably have a more expansionist fiscal policy by the British government. And if Boris goes ahead and has this lower, uh, you know, less regulated marketplace here, I, I think that you, you'll probably see quite a lot of inward investment. Unfortunately, what you'll see is that the people who voted for Brexit will be the people who suffer most. There's a high level of inequality here, particularly regional inequality, and I, I think, weirdly, that that will be exacerbated by Brexit. So the people who voted for Brexit will probably suffer the most, and the metropolitan elite who have opposed Brexit will be just fine. Yeah, that's an impression I'm getting. It's that there is that divide. There's a certain generational divide, people say, but that there is also a London and the rest of the country divide, economically, culturally, perhaps. Yeah, for sure. And I I think that if you spend time in central London, we're we're speaking from my office in the city of London, if if you go from here three, four, five miles west, you... It's some of the wealthiest areas in the history of the world, and those people will continue to be very wealthy. If you go outside London, if you go to the villages of the southeast, if you go down to actually to the area between here and Dover, you'll come across real poverty. And although the, there's very substantial poverty in Ireland, the, it's we don't have the same regional disparities. As, as, as you find here. So, as I say, in central London, you have some of the wealthiest places in the world. You go, to, you go within 40, 50 miles of here, and you'll have some of the wet, most deprived parts of Western Europe. Another thing from the Irish angle, Rory, the common travel area. It's something perhaps we took for granted. It was quite obviously there while the EU was there. 
But it, there's been very little about the fact that it was something of an achievement to ensure that it was solidified um, at a time when th th this business of closing the border seems to be so precious to a lot of people, even within the Home Office. Yeah, I, I think it, it was a considerable achievement on the part of both governments to close that off before it became a political issue. And I, I think the common travel area is frankly one of the reasons why the Irish feel so comfortable in Britain and the British find it so easy to come to Ireland. And I, I think, as I say, it's a substantial achievement and I, th I think it's there in perpetuity. The election, this notion that it is one of the most important in an awful long time, again, do you have a sense that's exaggerated? Well, they're all important and I suppose it's, it's important in that the Labour Party is standing on the most radical socialist agenda of any UK political party in many decades. And so I, I suppose whether you support that agenda or not, it is the case that a Labour government would, be, would take Britain in a very different direction. Weirdly, the Labour Party leadership seems to be secretly pro-Brexit, um, I think that Johnson is a a weak leader of a of a weak Tory party who may who may well receive a substantial majority. I think that the issue the issue in the UK will will not really come to a head until we'll have a Brexit with a Johnson-led government. And the next election, the, there will be the, the choices will be clearer. It will be back to economic policy as usual. It, it's confused now by the by the eight hundred pound gorilla Brexit. That's the thing. Like the old slogan, I suppose, coined by Bill Clinton, it's the economy stupid, and everybody since then has been suggesting that's the focus of all elections. I think it doesn't apply in this one, though. It, it doesn't. Um, I, I think certainly on the conservative side. The vote for the Conservatives now is firstly a vote, or the floating vote for the Conservatives, is firstly a vote against the Corbyn policies, which are, which are really radical. I don't want to use the word extreme, that's not a pejorative word, but they're very radical. The second thing is that a vote for Johnson is a, among the floating voters, again, is a vote for some resolution of the Brexit issue. Uh, it, it's quite clear from polls that quite a lot of those who supported Brexit would would prefer to have supported Remain, but it's also clear that some of those who supported Remain would now support Brexit on the basis of just let's get this thing done. And the, the real damage to this country is not the economic damage or even the political damage, it's the social damage. It's the and There's a great anxiety here that that would be resolved. This is a country which is... You know, a non-extremist country. This is we haven't had the rise here of the kind of extreme nationalism that we have in the Republic of Ireland. We have our, our third biggest party is a, a an ultra-extreme nationalist party. We've had nothing like that here, and I would say there's a generalised anxiety to avoid that. Yeah, and just the Johnson slogan, get, get Brexit done, I mean, it has been derided, and rightly so, because as everyone points out, Brexit will not simply be done when this agreement is signed, if you went to trade deals and all that. Having said all that, though, is there a case to be made that if you do anything but continue on with the Brexit project at this stage, 
you're basically going to continue with that divide and, and that niggling that, that's been there for the last couple of decades. I'm, I'm afraid so. We have a choice between the, the to, to coin a phrase, the, the evil of two lessers. <laughs> we, we, have the, we have the evil of Brexit, which um, does substantial damage to this country, and also, by the way, because it won't be the kind of hard Brexit that some people want, it still won't allow him to outflank the, the ultra-Eurosceptics. Um, but, but the greater evil or the, um, is, would, in my view, be a, a continuation of this, you know, a continuation of the debate. I think that the, those who voted for Brexit... We shouldn't think that they're any less sincere or intelligent than those who voted to remain. That they had, they had a, a different viewpoint, but they were told that if they voted for this, if it settled the issue. I think if there was a second referendum, unfortunately, you'd have a very substantial risk of a mass abstentionist campaign on the Brexit side. So we, we could have a reversal of the vote, but in a poll that was seen as being invalid. So, I, as I said, I think that we will have to go for the evil of two lessers. And you know who coined that about whom? It was coined about the Mitchell brothers by whom, I can't remember. Charlie High. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> One other thing, Lord. So, in, from your experience, particularly from a business, from a social, from a cultural point of view, you, would you see very little change, very disruption for Irish people, their business interests, their position in society here, once, if, as predicted, this breaks the thing, settles down? Yeah, I, I see no real change for, for the Irish here, other than that we're exposed to the UK economy. So I think see the impact on the Irish here as being tied up with our exposure to Britain's economic well-being. In fact... In some ways, we're much less exposed and, and have less at stake than the, than the poor old British people who, who are kind of stuck here. We have, we have an alternative world in which we, we can exist. And so I, I, I think that the scenario for us, while upsetting, is much less malign than for people in the UK who have nowhere else to go. Well, the first thing to say about that interview is I have to uh, hold my hands up and say I made an error myself when Rory referred to uh, that term that has entered Irish political folklore, the evil of two lessers. I uh, attributed it to Charlie Hawhey. I was, in fact, wrong. It's actually something that came from Michael McDool, who is still currently involved in politics. He's a senator at the moment, member of the Shannon. And if rumour is correct, he may well be uh, taking a run back at the doll in the new year, but we'll just have to wait and see on that one. But that is actually, as I say, I attributed that wrongly to Charlie Hawhey. It was Michael McDowell who came up with that phrase. Again, very interesting interview, very interesting views, and somebody who is well-connected to both this country and the UK, and uh, therefore we'll just have to see whether his uh, predictions as well will come true. Okay, folks, that's it for today. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, JJ Vernon, our engineer. Uh, you can contact me at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the Twitter at, at mickcliff. See you again soon.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 